Let us turn now to our scripture reading as it, as it comes to us in 1 Kings 4, 20 through 34. 1 Kings 4, 20 through 34. Hear now the word of the Lord. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. So Solomon reigned over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines. As far as the border of Egypt, they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Now Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fatted oxen, 20 oxen from the pastures, and 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and the, the fatted fowl. For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river from Tipsa even to Gaza, namely over all the kings on this side of the river, and he had peace on every side all around him. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan as far as Beersheba all the days of Solomon. Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And these governors, each man in his month, provided food for King Solomon, and for all who came to King Solomon's table, there was no lack in their supply. They also brought barley and straw to the proper place for the horses and steeds, each man according to his charge. And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezraite, and Heman, Calfcal, and Darda, the sons of Mahal. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. Also he spoke of trees, from the cedar trees of Lebanon even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish. And men of all nations, from the kings of the earth, who had heard of his wisdom, came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. May this word of God be blessed to our eyes and ears today. This is the third message of this series on First Kings, and I'm jumping around a little bit. I'm trying to hit the high spots of this of these two books, the First and Second Kings, and so we come we come. Uh, to First uh, Kings 4 today, and this is really a monumental passage uh, that is by and large uh, skipped over and neglected and not, under, not well understood by Protestant churches today. It's just one of many places in Scripture, one of many passages that uh, testify to the broader understanding of the kingdom of God and to its application to the six days of our weeks, upon which I have labored to some degree as a kind of hobby, uh, hobby horse over the, my years here since writing uh, Lifestyle, the, the, the book Lifestyle, uh, talking about how important the six days 
odd and the seventh day relationship is to the Christian church and to our understanding of what it means to be a Christian in today's world. And I've argued in the past that there is a kind of pietism which has predominated in the Christian church, the pietism where uh, only theology is mentioned, only the, the issues of the seventh day are mentioned, and then the, 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 the people of the church are kind of turned loose to do their best as the best they can during the six days of the week without much understanding that we're to do all for the glory of God. We, we will say that, we'll celebrate that, especially on a Reformation Day, we will hold up these ideas that we learned from Calvin and Knox and Luther and these great men, but we will not we will not seemingly major on them or integrate them into our thinking. So this passage in First Kings really does. And if you don't understand things in a Reformed perspective, this passage really doesn't mean very much. But if you understand that that your lack of understanding here leads to your depreciation of this text then it makes perfect sense uh, altogether. Now, I've outlined this in terms of uh, four, four points down below in the sermon outline. Number one is 1 Kings 4, prosperity, that is the prosperity taught here. Is that possible in this world? That's a, a theoretical question to begin with. But then number two, the occasion of this blessing during, during David and Solomon's reigns and uh, we'll go back to chapter 3 and look at four verses there, 5, 9, 12, and 13. And then number 3, the six-day described in, in the six-day period described in 1 Kings 4 in the, in the verses that we've read here, verses 20 through 35. So we'll turn to them and we'll look and, and to see the, the general common good or the common blessing that, they, that is spoken of in this passage, which is truly wonderful and fantastic and then lastly we will we will look at uh, solomon's relationship to david as the son of david and hence to redemption because we don't want to lose, we don't want to lose sight of the fact that these things these these general blessings upon the six days uh had a direct connection to to king david as the son of david uh and well i mean to solomon as the son of david but we also know that some, there's someone else, isn't there, that is celebrated as the son of David, and that is Jesus Christ. And so there's, there's that strong connection there that we must, uh, we must uh, take our uh, leave from only to our detriment. And, uh, and then I'll bring a few more, a few uh, applications at the end with child rearing and these kinds of things that I think will be helpful uh, and um, uh, and uh, worth our worth our study and our contemplation. So let's begin. Uh, is First Kings four prosperity possible in this world? Now we know here that there are, are extravagant verses in this passage about the prosperity that's there. We'll look at it a little bit more closely, but I just want you to take a quick survey. And it, it mentions uh, that the people of Israel were like the sand on the seashore. It mentions that there was a general peace over the region, and it says from the river to um, the sea or to the land of uh, Philistia. And it's, this is not the Jordan River that's mentioned here, but it's the, the western end of the Euphrates. So what is taken, what the picture here is that the, the, all of the, not only Judah and Israel, but also all of the tribes that were antagonistic toward them over the years, 
the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Canaanites, the Amorites, all of these pagan tribes that were pushed out of the land when Israel was settled by God. Settled by God himself. God is the owner of the silver and the gold and the cattle on a thousand hills. And God is the owner, the ultimate owner of all the land of the earth. So when God dispossesses any people from this land, uh, it, it is a fair and just uh, 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 resettlement uh, or expulsion of the people. Now, of course, if you don't accept Jehovah as your God, if the first commandment is not the highest a good in your life, thou shalt have no other gods before me, it says there. If that's not true, well, then you're with the, then you can be numbered with the people of this world who endlessly can have contests with God and debates with him about what's right and wrong. And you can redefine equity. You can redefine justice. You can redefine what a male is, what a female is. All of these things that we count as givens, you can debate them because you will not accept the very first point the high point of the pyramid of values which governs everything that we do. And that's why it is absolutely necessary to have Jehovah God as your God. That's where all ethics start. That's where all theories of beauty start. That's where all, uh, 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 all dictionaries start. We cannot define things willy-nilly however we might like to define them. And that's just a basic philosophical, a uh, Christian philosophical view of the world. And uh, when you hear the debates that are going on now about the land of Israel, about the land of Palestine, everyone's defining these terms in terms of their own tribal uh, dictionary. Nobody is submitted to the dictionary of the living God. What true goodness is, what true righteousness is, what true mercy is, what true evil is. But we do because... Now, back to this question, is First Kings 4 prosperity possible in this world? We have a, things called the prosperity gospel today. There's a lot of debate about when and where we can become prosperous, whether by what that is conditioned. Uh, we're, we're not going to delve into all of that, but what we're going to say is that in this passage of Scripture, there's a wonderful time of prosperity. This passage of Scripture comes as close as we can get to an earthly millennium. You know, we debate the millennium. How concrete will the millennium be? Well, if you look at this passage of what happened to Israel during the reigns of David and Solomon, you have an approximation of the millennium. Now, there are people that say that there's, there can be no earthly dimension to the millennium, that the millennium must be identified with heaven. Now, that's because they're not Old Testament people. They have no Old Testament theology. If you have an Old Testament theology, you have to admit that an earthly blessing has already come. It was already introduced once by the living God to his Old Testament people, Israel. It didn't last very long. It foundered, it, it insisted on the necessity of a, of a Savior, Messiah, King, even Jesus, to come. But that doesn't dispel the idea that this, this idea already came once. That's why this chapter is so important. When people skip over this, they skip over the foundation for all millennialism. 
all sense of earthly blessing by the Lord. They, they, they can sing, and we do this in the RPCNA. We sing Psalm 1 happily, and then we never apply it to our lives. How can we do this? We sing Psalm 2, we sing Psalm 110, we sing Psalm 22 at the end, where it speaks of these wonderful blessings that are come. And we, we sing them robustly as we sing Psalms, but we've separated the sense of the Psalms from our lives. And there's no communication between the one and the other. Well, here we see in 1 Kings 4 that all of these things are slain. They are put into the dust because God during the reign of Solomon, raises up a very blessed time in Israel that, if nothing else, is a foretaste of what shall come. When we, it's amazing to me, when I study the, the concept of the kingdom of God, uh, when, and I listen to scholars debating the kingdom of God and, and talking about it, that hardly a one goes back to the Old Testament kingdom as their archetype. They, attack, they kind of super-spiritualize the idea of the kingdom of God. They interpret Jesus' words about the kingdom and all that it says about the kingdom of God in the New, Test in the New Testament completely uh, out of the context of the Old Testament kingdom. Now, we know the Old Testament kingdom failed, but that, that is not an excuse for, or, or for pretending that God did, did not know what he was doing when he raised up the Old Testament kingdom. He raised up the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of David and Solomon, for a purpose, to provide a foundation for the New Testament kingdom of God. And we, we obviously we have to go by what the New Testament says, but there's a, there's a fitting together here of these ideas. And in today's um, hermeneutic, where the inter interpretation of the Old Testament and New Testament, there's almost a complete breakdown between the Old Testament kingdom and the New. Uh, they, they pretend that, that everything in the Old Testament was a failure. Well, was it a failure with the people of Israel multiplying like the sand of the seashore? Was it a, was it a failure that there was so much blessing during this time? That there was a virtual, that Israel became, uh, along with Egypt, uh, became the predominant political entity over this part of the world. It's It's astounding. We, we think today of the strife that's going on in our world today and how the Lord seemingly has given people's minds over to a, 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 a crowd mentality or to a, a mass hysteria, either for this idea or that. Now, now we're supposed to pretend that it's a, that it's a good thing to go in and, to people's homes and to massacre them and to rip, their, rip, rip a, a pregnant women apart with our knives and our swords. And, uh, and that that's all good stuff because it's done in the name of Allah or Hamas or some other idea that we cannot, we, we cannot even uh, penetrate the idea that this is great wickedness. And this is being done in America. At one time, after World War II, the world was pretty much united with the idea that Nazism was a horrible transgression of ethics of goodness and righteousness and these kinds of things. Now, based on the tribalism that rules the ethics of our day, it's fine as long as you're of the right tribe. Well, this was not the case. In this day, when Jehovah was elevated to his proper place, then there was great prosperity that came. 
Now, the second point here of the sermon is that the occasion of his blessing was during David and Solomon's reigns. In, in Lifestyle, I talk about how there are two tracks that run right through history. There's the track of the six days, uh, the cultural history, inventions and ideas of culture that are advances uh, uh, on the previous age. And these things run along one track, and then spirituality and the goodness of God runs along another track. Now, theoretically, the two tracks should run right together, but they don't. And very often, as we see in Genesis 4, there, there was blessing associated with the, the evil Cain, the family of Cain, who were the first ones to rebel against the Lord. Uh, Genesis 4 is another chapter like, like uh, 1 Kings 4, where... Many Christians just skip over that seemingly without any understanding of what is indicated in Genesis 4 about how God could possibly indulge and bless the, the people of the earth that rebelled against him. Well, the, the spiritual track was going through uh, Seth, Adam and Eve, and then Cain rose up and slew his brother Abel. Abel was a good man, but Cain, he was slain by Cain. And then the, 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 track, the, the, the track of the godly, Followed after South. But Genesis 4 talks about all the things that the other people did, the people that rebelled and rebelled against God. They were the first ones to form a city. They were the first musicians. They were they 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 devised things like metal works, metal energy, and these kinds of things. So they, they were making great cultural advances, even as their spirituality was in the toilet. How can this be? How could God countenance that? Well, that goes on right throughout the Bible. And sometimes those two, those two train tracks come extremely close together, and they are almost one. And that's such an occasion that we see here today in, in 1 Kings 4. Uh, Solomon is one of the godliest men of the world. His, his father David was a man after God's own heart. And coordinated with the spiritual blessing was the earthly blessing that we see here in First uh, Kings 4. Now, if we see, if we turn back to chapter 3, we see by a number of these verses here, uh, I've got them down in your notes, is 5, 9, 12, and 13. Uh, in, in, five, in verse 5, Solomon had gone, his, his father David had died, and uh, Solomon, he, he, Solomon, there was this intrigue and the passing of the mantle of the kingdom from David to Solomon, not uh, Adonijah, which the first couple of chapters deal with. But in verse 5, uh, Solomon has gone to Gibeon to make a sacrifice. And uh, in a dream by night, God said to Solomon, ask what I shall give you. Uh, Solomon then talks about this and uh, he talks about what a great mercy that God was to David. This is in his dream. And uh, 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 he says, therefore, in verse 9, give to your servant understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? And uh, uh in verse 12, then, God says, Behold, I have done according to your word. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall there be anyone like you arise after you. And I have also given to you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, 
So this is the foundation of what happens in the next chapter. Because Solomon inclined his heart to the Lord spiritually, then God gave him all of these cultural advantages, uh, cultural wisdom, cultural discretion, cultural wisdom to make decisions for the state, and uh, it says there that there's there's no one uh, in in uh, either the the east or the west whose wisdom could compare with that of Solomon. So it's like um, it's like uh, Solomon was like a super Donald Trump. At least if you believe if you believe Trump and what he says about himself, you see, then you say, well, Solomon was such a man as this, only super, even more superlative. He didn't make any mistakes at all in terms of his general policy for the country, uh, at least uh, for uh, the great majority of his life. And his wisdom was seen, everything that he touched turned to gold. Now why is it that, why is it that uh, in this world today, where so many groups of people, so many multitudes are inclined to have errant thoughts or errant worldviews of things, is it not because God has given them over to these kinds of things? And on the contrary, then, when God smiles upon us, can God give, not give us a wonderful unity so that we don't think so much about our ego or our own families or our own tribes, but we think our, our hearts are fully at peace with the good things of this world. But there would be no a slavery if this were the case. There would be no contentions between men. And in the, New, in the New Testament, God exhorts the apostles, pray for a oneness of spirit and a oneness of heart. So he's praying for the church and he's saying, I can give you these things, but they come from me. And so when a church really agrees with everything, when, when the, uh, the ideas that they are set before them are wise, and then all of them incline their hearts to those good ideas, when that happens, then uh, that is a terrific blessing. Um, at the same time, when God's grace is absent, then it's a, it's a real problem. And so the occasion of this blessing was that the passing from David to Solomon and Solomon's request for wisdom. Uh, the third point now is that the, the, is the six days described in this passage. Now let's let's look at this passage. You just a minute, look at all the blessings. First of all, in verse twenty, it says that it speaks of the the multi, the, the the plenitude of people, and it says they were eating and drinking and rejoicing. Right away, it was like there was this this party that engulfed the whole culture at that time. There was so much unity and so much happiness there. Verse 21, So Solomon reigned over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines. So not only was there cultural joy, but there was also political peace and stability. How could these people, the Amorites and the Canaanites and the, the uh, uh, Jebusites and all of these people that had once been jealous of Israel, how could God sow seeds of peace in their hearts so that they would just be happy? Uh, this would be so wonderful today if it happened in Gaza. The people of Gaza wouldn't be so uh, envious of uh, the Jewish prosperity uh, that, that they, they would be more happy for 
the prosperity of Gaza and for their children. Uh, today, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an endless devolvement into chaos there in Gaza, where the, seemingly the people do, are not even concerned about their children's futures. They're, they're more concerned about uh, some momentary uh, glory that they might get by standing in the necks of the Jews. Now, when, I mean, logically and sensibly, if we had the decision to make, would we, would we want the prosperity of our children, peace, prosperity, bounty, blessings, happiness, or the chance to carry on this vendetta, what, what would the rational person choose? You might say, well, the vendetta maybe had some a point at one time in history, but what about the future? Am I going to lose my, my whole life going to be embroiled in this vendetta? Or am I going to look for happiness? Well, this is what happened here. At this time, you see, because all of these peoples, the land of the Philistines, down to Egypt, all these peoples that had opposed Israel vehemently in the past, now delighted in the wisdom of Solomon. Verse 22 says that Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fatted oxen. This is every day, 20 oxen from the pastures and 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted, fatted owl or fatted fowl. Um, you see, God was so respectful here of the, of the palate of the people in that day. He even brought in wild, uh, wild beasts to be, to be part of the king's table. But every day, now a core is uh, ten, ten, the equi- roughly the equivalent of 10 five-gallon buckets that we would get from Lowe's or Home Depot or something like that. Ten of those five-gallon buckets uh, and uh, of course, in this case, it doesn't say that there was just one core of this stuff, but there was um, uh, there were 30, 30 cores of f- fine flour, sixty cores of meal, ten fatted oxen. I've, I've I've been a meat cutter in my life, and one oxen will go a long way. You can make a lot of hamburger out of ten oxen. It's a feed a lot of people. Well, they were feeding three thousand people a day with all of this stuff. And the stuff was coming in. It says later on the passage, the stuff was coming in from all over the kingdom at that time. Uh, each uh, each uh, governor, in verse 27 it says, each governor brought in a day's supply. And so there was this wonderful bureaucracy that was established that was working peaceably. And people weren't jealous of each other. They weren't, they weren't envious of each other and what they've drawn or what they made or what they grew. Everything was working peaceably together. As I said, this is this not a, a picture of the millennium? Now, if you bring up the millennium, people say that can't happen here on this earth. And there's just too much sin. It can't happen. We say to them, it already did. <laughs> it happened in, four, in King, First Kings chapter 4 to a remarkable degree, this kind of blessing. This kind of blessing did not come because of separation of church and state. It didn't come because of secularism. It didn't come because there was some great secular leader, uh, some Mussolini, some Hitler, some uh, Khrushchev, or some person like that uh, from the Soviet Union. It came because the people's hearts were quieted by their allegiance to Jehovah God. He was their king, and they fell happily into place before his face. So... um, if you, if you look at this, all of this passage, I want, I also, I want to bring out here 
two two more things. Thirty one, for he was wiser, and it says he was the he was he spoke three thousand proverbs. So the proverbs we have in the book of Proverbs were only a portion of the proverbs of Solomon, and he wrote one thousand songs and five. So he was a, a lyricist. He could write music and and songs. Also, verse thirty three it says also he spoke of trees from the dark from the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He also spoke of animals and birds and creeping things and a fish. Where in the world is this in terms of Reformed theology today? You see, it's a hole, an absence. If you turn back, like to the, even in our country, to the days of Jonathan Edwards, he was a great theologian. People are almost unaware of the fact that Edwards was also a scientist. He loved to write and study about the things of this world. Why did he do that? Because of passages like 1 Kings 4. But we're utterly disinterested in these things today as, as far as the Reformed Church goes. By and large, we, we don't celebrate these things. But Solomon did, and God did, in the days of Solomon. Uh, studies of animals and birds and creeping things and a fish. In, it, in verse 34, that summarizes the whole of it. It says, And men of all nations from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. It was a great day when the Egyptians or the people that resettled Babylon after its heights, the Assyrians, it was a great day when they could come and listen and take up the knowledge of Solomon. Now, there's not a huge amount of that's written about this at this time in the Bible, because that's not the main focus of the Bible. But it's here, and it's a really strong dose, and we ought to take cognizance of it in terms of our understanding of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not just about theology. It's not just about the elect. It's what the elect do with their theology in the six days of their lives. You see, God created this world, and he told us to have dominion over it. He told us to investigate the world. He told us to, to look here and to look there and to find secrets that he had embedded into the world, whether it's finding gold or diamonds or whether it's finding uh, such things as di digital logic where we can make computers and all of a sudden think ten times faster than we could think the day before. All of these things come from the divine mind of God, and they're all brilliant and wonderful. And if we love, if we've been brought under dominion by Jesus Christ, then we're more open to seeing these things and developing them in our own lives. And so this brings us to our fourth point, which is the Solomon's relationship to David. David is a, David is a prophetic figure not only standing for himself, but standing as a foretaste of the Messiah, even Jesus Christ. David was not a strong man like Saul, but he succeeded where Saul failed because he had a heart for God. He had a love for God. He, wouldn't, he had a magnificent respect for the sovereignty of God, so that even when a person who was trying to kill him was within his within the, the grasp of his sword. David did not take the life of uh, of these people, soldiers or, or princes of the day, uh, followers uh, of the rebellion. 
but he because he respected the the, the strength and the power of God so much so that uh, but then he had the son Solomon whom God had prophesied Solomon would be the king after David and so uh, Solomon was raised up and we see the blessings of Solomon because of his father David because of the grace of God that worked through them and so well, this is perfectly mirrored in the New Testament at the uh, in at uh, in Ephesians one, the end of chapter one of Ephesians, it says, uh, "He that is the Father put all things under His feet, that is the Son, and gave Him to be head over all things to the Church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all and all." And um, uh, there are very few commentaries that that. Uh, really deal with that in a, a, a realistic fashion that show the connection between Christ, the church, and the world. And so we, but we, we, would, we would point to that today and point to the fact that we must be uh, better people than this, uh, than, than our day. We must see these things. Uh, uh, in terms of application, you see, if we have this, if we have this insight for ourselves, we can teach our children these things. Our children can have hopes. It's important for our children not just to come to church, but to come to church and take home the ideas that they learn at church and apply them to the six days to the six days of their week, so that the six days and the seventh day are not antagonists or antithetical, but they fit together very well. And then this also gives them ambition. What if a, what if a child does not have uh, the abilities to be a preacher? Is his life lost? Is his life basically a vanity lived out in this world with no purpose? No! Because God wants us to be technicians. He wants us to be soldiers and policemen. He wants us to be doctors and lawyers and nurses and mothers and fathers. He, all of this he has in his hands. So if we teach this stuff, it gives our children and ambition and plans to do their cultural labors and to fulfill the kingdom of God in a bright and broad way. Uh, thirdly, we ought to see that, that uh, all of these things are nothing other than having to do with the kingdom of God, as Jesus preached it in the New Testament. Jesus came preaching the kingdom first, that is the dominion of God over all of our lives. He came teaching that first before he taught about redemption in the second half of the Gospels. Many people who just see the life in a pious, life in a pietistic way, they say, where, where, why didn't Jesus teach anything about the forgiveness of sins in the first half of the Gospels? Why did he, why did he belabor all this teaching of the kingdom? Didn't he know about the Gospel? You see, it's just it's foolish. What it, what it means is that they do not understand the connection between the gospel of the seventh day and the where Jesus rose again from the dead and the the gospel of the six days, which is the application of this gospel on all of our lives. Now, you should you should notice that even though most people don't have a real sharp understanding of these things. And so you can say, well, it's just totally foreign to what we know as Christianity. Most people do this already to a degree. In other words, they, they, they don't just lay down on the six days and wait for the seventh day and then rise up and breathe and have, a, have their life on the seventh day and then they go back into a stupor on Monday morning. No, 
we realize that there's a necessity to work and to labor. And as we work and we labor, we discover these things that God has planted in the creation. Uh, and so we do it even if we don't really understand what we're doing. But would it not be better for us to understand these things more clearly and do them more self-consciously? I believe that is the case. Uh, lastly, the culture, the creation mandate of Genesis uh, 1 28 uh, calls us to do this uh, self-consciously and uh, it, it, uh, it calls us to, like the third commandment, it calls us to not take the, the Lord's name in vain, but it calls us to take the Lord's name in virtue so that we do things self-consciously aware that we are his servants in this world and we are developing the world and doing it all for his glory. We're, we're discovering these things because of his glory and we're then we're returning them back to him for his own glory. And it's, a, it's just a part of the beatific vision of the Christian life. Um, and uh, I would say lastly here that this identifies the wickedness of secularism, because secularism is just the opposite of that. But secularism is, is the God of our day. It's the God of our day. It's the great promise that if we do things secularly, that we'll uh, avoid all uh, internecine battles between the faiths and the denominations and the forms of religion and that sort of thing, we'll find a, a blessed beatific vision if we just are secular enough. This was what they, they, they wrote books about Lebanon, the country of Lebanon, because uh, just after World War II, Lebanon was this kind of a country. It, it, was, it had Islam in it, it had Christianity, it had Judaism in it, and yet they, everybody got along fine for about 15 or 20 years. And so Time Magazine, all the books, they wrote, they wrote magazine articles about how the diversity of Lebanon was the promise of the world. But strangely enough, those books are no longer written because Lebanon uh, devolved into a cauldron of chaos. There's a lovely, a lovely historical illustration of all this from the life of John Calvin, since we're so close to Reformation Day here. I thought that I would read this for you. Um, and ironically enough, this took place on Christmas Day, uh, 1551. It was not a it was not a day of worship, but they they knew they they knew uh, in that day they knew the the uh, the day of Christmas. They didn't celebrate it especially, but they knew that the rest of Europe did. And so in, in Geneva, Switzerland, uh, they came to Christmas Day, 1559. This was also the day, the year 1559 is when the Scottish Reformation began in Scotland. Very interesting. But on this day, uh, Christmas Day 1559, what happened on that day? But John Calvin was made a citizen of Geneva. And he'd come to Geneva 23 years before this time. He'd been run out of town. He'd been assaulted. All kinds of terrible things had happened. But 23 years later now, on Christmas Day, he was welcomed into the city. Let me just read you about this. This is this comes from uh, uh, a, a book by uh, Gladys Barr, who uh, who uh, was a Christian novelist and, and was very historical in her descriptions. But wrote the people came through the melting snow from every part of Geneva, from the Isle, 
uh, St. Gervais and the city proper, crossing the New Stone Bridge, pressing forward to St. Peter's Church with a tall wooden spire that pointed to the clear blue sky. You can visit St. Peter's today. That was the church where Calvin preached most of the time when he was there in Geneva. Soon hundreds were assembled in the old church. Boys, girls, young men, young ladies, women, noticeably, noticeably without unseemly jewelry. They had jewelry, but it wasn't gaudy. Men from all walks of life, syndics, magistrates, councilmen, senators, ministers, educators, prominent citizens, and the humble who worked with their hands. No seats had been reserved for the influential. In St. Peter's, the rich and the poor were treated alike. It was Christmas Day. In the year of the first synod of the Reformed Church met that the first synod of the Reformed Church met in France, and the year of the Academy at Geneva was founded. In the high tower were John Calvin, the master of Geneva. He had worked, meditated, wept, prayed. The ancient bells, the Clements and Belle Reve, rang forth. An imminent, an imminent personage was to be honored by the gathering, and the bells were honoring him too. Below in St. Peter's Square, a herald in blue velvet with opalettes of gold motioned to the people to make an aisle. There was a stir as a thin man of 50 dressed in a black vestment, a heavy cloak, and a small velvet hat walked quietly toward the church. His eyes in their sunken sockets were diamond bright. His frame was bent, but he walked proudly, slowly through the crowd toward the large stone church. For an instant, there was silence. Then a cheer sounded, and another, until the air trembled with shouts for this man who was meant to be made a citizen of Geneva this wintry morning. Inside, there was a turning of heads, a whispering, uh, as of dried leaves stirred by the winter wind, a flutter as the man made his way past the city guard in neat blue uniforms with breeches that were not slashed or otherwise unseemly. There goes the master of Geneva, Master Calvin, God bless him. As he became aware of the excitement, his appearance aroused. Tears came unbidden to Calvin's face, his eyes. He moved quietly to his accustomed place behind the communion table and turned compelling black eyes to survey tenderly all the love-filled faces, his spiritual children. His enemies, the enemies of the gospel, had accused him of political ambitions, but he had never asked to be made a citizen or burger, though actually he had ached to belong, to be a Genevan. Now he would no longer be a foreigner, that Frenchman, as he was often called in derision. He would never again be pelted with stones or filth from their chamber pots. Dogs would no longer be named, after, be named Calvin, except perhaps a favorite or a beloved pet. This was triumph indeed. The plotting against God and against him as God's servant had stopped. After 23 years of agonizing struggle, he belonged. For today, the people were voluntarily making him a citizen. How grateful he was. God still worked miracles. The stone which Geneva's builders had rejected, the Son of God, had come to become the chief cornerstone. These spiritual children would grow in grace in the knowledge that their Savior, the schoolmaster, the Lord Jesus Christ, had led them in their city out of the labyrinth of darkness into the light. How, how satisfying to come to such a day. Memories of the years gone by crowded upon him. He could see the woman he had loved smiling warmly, Edelette, her deep devotion shining from her brown eyes, her clear brown eyes. She knew what was happening on this Christmas day. She too was proud and happy 
that he had won God's battle. From Geneva, the word of God was spreading into many parts of the world. From the newly founded academy begun as a dream in his mind, pure Christianity would permeate the nations of the world as its students, nourished in Christian truth, returned to their native lands. Beside John, Calvin sat Theodore de Beza, his most beloved disciple, who had been reclaimed by the gospel and would one day, perhaps not too far distant, succeeds Calvin and carry on God's work. On the front bench sat Francois Bonavard, who had served a prison sentence in Shalom, France, for his faith, and through whose generosity the academy had been built. John could not help comparing such men with the libertines, uh, those, those covetous and hard hearts which, brought, which had brought havoc to the city. The prisoner of Chalon would long be remembered. Theodore would grow great in his service to God. Future generations leading, reading the minutes of the Council of Geneva, learning of the evil deeds of the Fobs, Amy Perrin, Perrin the, the, uh, the Camaray brothers, young Philip Berthelet, and uh, Pierre Amol might well ask, why do men created in God's image stumble through the darkness when they have eternal light within their reach? John sighed as he listened to the voices lauding God's work, which he had helped God to accomplish. The years rolled back. I did my best, he thought. I tried to see God's will and do it. Poorly sometimes, but I tried. God led I followed obedience. If only men would make that the key to our lives. Dear God, John's lips moved silently. What an ignorant, superstitious fool I was. In his mind, a phrase repeated itself. After darkness, light. That was the sign over the entrance to the academy. After darkness, light. Light for thy city, God. I knew thou wert sovereign. Yet at times the way was so difficult. But I never prayed for an easy task only that I might be thy faithful servant. So we have in this description of the day that Calvin became a citizen of Geneva. We have the, uh, the happy confluence of the movement of the Holy Spirit upon the city of Geneva. Geneva, Switzerland was, a, was a, just a small, nothing city when Calvin went there. Today it's known as one of the, the world centers of, of um, diplomacy, of, of, uh, of the, the world's wealth, gold supplies, one of the places where uh, the, the watch industry found its match. So with, in this city that Calvin had so much influence over, that he went through so much strife to win, much like David and Solomon. And yet we see it opening up here onto a day of blessing. And so it has been in so many cases for Christianity since then, where, where Christianity has been obedient and humble before the Lord. They have found, or we have found, so many blessings. I, I hold this before you as a, a goal for all of us in the future. Let us see that, that there can be blessings in this world, as it says in Psalm 1, as it teaches in Psalm 1, didactically. Not prophetically, but didactically and prophetically. And, uh, and so we hold this before ourselves and let us be inspired by it. Like we're inspired by David and Solomon in their reign that we see portrayed here in First, uh, first Kings 4. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we pray that we would be happy in thee. You have said you came that we might have life and that abundantly in John 10. We pray, O oh Lord, that we, would, uh, that we would be ready to suffer for righteousness' sake when that is called for. But we pray that we would also be ready 
to see thy blessings upon us, to see thy prosperity as thou dost work that out through the church of Christ. And we pray that in that day of prosperity, should we see it come to us, we pray, O Lord, that we would not be presumptuous of it or forgetful of how much we owe to thee and to thy grace. And we pray, O Lord, that we would not stumble over our prosperity into wickedness as they did in ancient Israel. But we pray that we would um, uh, only increase from strength to strength in the praise of thy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.